0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study this brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 90, the book of Matthew, chapter 26, the second continuation. We open today with what is known as the very intriguing Last Supper. Now, clearly, From the way in which this event is covered in all the gospel accounts, each writer sees it as dramatically meaningful for those who love and who trust in Jesus of Nazareth, as well as one of the great mile markers along the road of redemption history. Now, when we closed our study of Matthew 26 last week, we are at the point that Jesus was revealing that he was about to be betrayed by one of his 12 disciples. Now, naturally, 11 of those disciples were shocked and shaken at the news and probably just a little bit confused. The 12th disciple, Judas, had to be equally startled as he wondered how in the world Yeshua could know about the plot he had hatched just a few hours earlier with some members of the senior priesthood to turn Christ over to the Sanhedrin in order to condemn him and then kill him. So as each disciple, in turn, asks if it's going to be him, it finally arrives to Judas who deceitfully asks the same question, to which Yeshua responds in affirmation, the words are yours. Now unmasked as the betrayer, apparently Judas remained with the twelve a little longer, reclined at the table, as Yeshua led a solemn ceremony that we're going to dissect today with some tender care. Now, one would think that Judas might have fled at this point. I sure would have. Or there would have been some kind of narrative by Matthew about the other disciples' reaction towards their their fellow disciple, Judas, but weirdly there is none. Rather things just seem to proceed as though nothing out of the ordinary had happened. Bible scholars have for centuries pondered why something as obvious and expected as Judas fleeing, or the other disciples becoming enraged, or Jesus ousting him from his presence wasn't recorded by any of the Gospel writers. Now, I'm not going to present the handful of speculations to try to explain this other than to say that up to this point, what we've witnessed is that Christ's close circle, of the Twelve have been self-promoting and self-concerned all along. I can't escape the sense that because of this rather unseemly mindset, the innocent Eleven they were more relieved that they weren't seen by Jesus as the betrayers than saddened at the fact that their Master's life was soon to be snuffed out on account of the wickedness of Judas. So they just sort of compartmentalized the thought of it, something men are always good at doing, for the better or the worse. And they they moved on with their meal and the accompanying traditional holiday ceremony. Yeshua too seems to have set this tragic reality aside for the moment to do something that would become a centerpiece Of institutional church liturgy, something that much later came to be called communion. Let's read a section, just a short section of Matthew chapter 26. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 26. We're just going to read verses 23 through 30. 23 through 30. He answered, The one who dips his matzah in the dish, dish with me is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man will die, just as the Tanakh, the Old Testament, says he will. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him had he never been born. Judas, the one who was betraying him, then asked, Surely, Rabbi, you don't mean me. And he answered, words are yours. And while they were eating, Yeshua took a piece of matzah, made the bercha, broke it, gave it to the Talmudim, the disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. Also, he took a cup of wine, he made the bercha, and gave it to them, saying, all of you, drink from it, for this is my blood, which ratifies the new covenant, my blood shed on behalf of many, so that they may have their sins forgiven. I tell you, I will not drink this fruit of the vine again until the day I drink new wine with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing the Hallel, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 23 says that the disciple that dips his matzah into the bowl along with Christ will be the one that betrays him. Verse 24 says that Yeshua reveals that his betrayal will result in his death. However, what lays in store for this betrayer is so terrible to contemplate that having never been given life by his mother to begin with would have been far better for him. And verse 25 goes on to expose to the group that the betrayer is Judas. Now, I want to pause for just a moment to highlight something that comes up among Christians about this scene. It's this. Since it was written, in other words, it was prophesied, as in determined by God, that the Messiah was to be unjustly killed upon a cross and therefore was something that had to happen as the pivotal moment in redemption history, then the fact that it was largely due to the actions of Judas needs to be taken into account with some mercy in mind. That is, it seems to be that Judas was predestined from ages past to be the facilitator of this immense tragedy that at the same time is the crown jewel of atonement for humanity. Therefore, Judas, perhaps, should be seen as pitiable, even exonerated by God, for his treason against Yeshua, since it always would be necessarily have to fall upon someone close to him to do that dirty deed. And since God doesn't make mistakes, then for Judas to ever have been admitted to the group of twelve. As one of jesus's closest and first disciples judas actually was a believer who made a lamentable mistake for which he repented and was forgiven and what he didn't wasn't what he did rather wasn't all that different from what another disciple that gathered the unfortunate nickname of doubting thomas by the way i've heard this same logic applied to hitler the author of the Holocaust. That is, it was Hitler that, pre, that God predetermined to use to drive the Jews back to their homeland, and it was the guilt of the world for not intervening and helping the Jews that provided the momentum to officially give the Holy Land back to the Jews to reform their ancient nation. You know, Hitler had always identified himself as a Christian, right up to a suicide. Therefore in the end Hitler was God's tool as a facilitator of something terrible in order to bring about something good. Now one could wonder about this troubling and distasteful conclusion except for one thing. Yeshua said about this about the one who would betray him it'd be better for him if he'd never been born. This can only be speaking about the eternal torment that Judas would suffer, no doubt for Hitler as well. Bottom line to this, never ever is evil acceptable to God, even if in the end some good evolved from it. Never ever is betraying Him Are walking away from our allegiance to him, acceptable. While there is no way for me to forensically discover exactly what Judas' mind was towards Christ, there is not one recorded word said about him that implies that when he first became a disciple of Yeshua, that it was not out of sincerity. All we really know about Judas is that at some point he became disenchanted or full of doubt or simply greedy and he turned away from God's Son as his Lord and Messiah. Well, with verse 26, the Last Supper or Lord's Supper ceremony begins. Now, I've spent much of your time over the past few weeks slicing and dicing the Biblical feasts of Passover and Unleavened Bread in order to bring you to the important conclusion that it is impossible that the supper we are reading about was the Biblically ordained Passover meal, or Seder, as it's known within Judaism. Briefly, that is because the Passover meal is always eaten not on Passover, but rather on the first day of the seven-day feast that begins the following day, the Feast of Matzah. And the Apostle John tells us that Christ was crucified on Passover, also known as Preparation Day in that era. It was during the daytime on Passover afternoon that the Passover lambs were slaughtered and then cooked. Now, since you cannot have the Passover meal without the cooked lamb, then there's no way that the Last Supper, which happened the night before, was the Biblical Passover meal. Okay, Let's hear what the Apostle John says about all this. In John 19, verses 13 through 18, we read, when Pilate heard that what they were saying. He brought Yeshua outside and sat down on the judge's seat in the place called the pavement in Aramaic, Gabta. It was about noon on preparation day for Passover, and he said to the Judeans, Here's your king. And they shouted, Take him away, take him away, put him to death on the stake. Pilate said to them, You want me to execute your king on the stake? And the head priest, uh, the high priest, answered, We have no king but the emperor. And then Pilate handed Yeshua over to them to have him put to death on the stake. So they took charge of Yeshua and carrying the stake himself, he went out to a place called Skull in Aramaic, Gulgota, and there they nailed him to the stake along with two others, one on either side with Yeshua in the middle. And then at the end of John chapter 19, he reinforces this by saying, verse 42, So, because it was Preparation Day for the Judeans and because the tomb was close by, that's where they buried Yeshua. See, John uses the clearest language of all the Gospel accounts to pinpoint the day of Christ's crucifixion. And as we've already learned, Preparation Day was a nickname at that time for Passover Day. Because Passover Day, was when all the preparations for the Passover meal were by custom made. That is, because immediately after dark, the now prepared Passover meal was to be eaten, and since a new day begins upon sunset, the Passover ends, the first day of matzah begins. And the first day of matzah is a biblically ordained Great Sabbath, not the regular seventh day Sabbath in which no work was to be done, including no food preparation. So, while the Last Supper indeed occurred on Passover, it was in the first hour or two of the day, but that occurs just after sunset. It happens several hours before the slaughter of the lambs that would occur on Passover day. Now, Notice something else that's sort of buried in this verse from John 19. John says it was preparation day for the Judeans. For the Judeans. See, our eyes kind of skip over this. But when we pause to reflect upon it, it's kind of an odd thing to say. Who else would preparation day before? See the issue is this: in Greek, the word that the complete Jewish Bible correctly translates as Judeans is iudeos. While this is regularly translated into English as Jew or Jewish, that misses the mark. The literal meaning, depending on the context generally speaking is Judean or a person, more distantly, to be considered part of the tribe of Judah and these two identifications are not precisely the same. A Judean, look at the map up here, a Judean was a resident of the Roman governing district called Judea. It's like saying Floridian, or Californian, or New Yorker. The difference is that this term only applied to a resident of the district of Judea that was also a Hebrew. A Gentile living in Judea probably wouldn't have called himself a Judean. On the other hand, a person from the tribe of Judah is technically a Judahite, and while Judahite is a tribal identification, Judean is a kind of national identification. In Yeshua's era, because the tribe of Benjamin had centuries earlier sort of folded with and into the tribe of Judah, then even a person of the tribe of Benjamin would, by Christ's era, usually call themselves a Judahite. See, tribal affiliations, Old Testament tribal affiliations, had become something of a distant past for the Hebrews. Not a usual part of their identity or conversation, but it did come up time to time the same way that, on some occasions, we all might talk about our distant ancestry. So, when John said it was preparation day for the Judeans, we must understand this meant it was preparation day for the residents of Judea. In the traditions that were developed, by the Hebrew residents of Judea, Passover Day at some point became deemed Preparation Day. But neither Christ nor His disciples were Judeans, they were all Galileans. Galileans had developed their own set of traditions about celebrating the feast days that were separate. From the Judeans. So, the implication by the Apostle John is that the Galileans had not nicknamed Passover day as preparation day, rather that was an innovation of the Judeans. Now, remember that all but the Judeans had to pack up and travel anywhere from a few to several days to come to Jerusalem for the holidays of Passover and Unleavened Bread. So it's easy to see why, out of practicality, some traditions had to be created to allow for this. So, the Lord's Supper was some kind of a traditional Galilean pre-Passover event that the Judeans did not practice. Among Christian Bible scholars, it is common for them to observe that when we read of the bowl that Christ says he and the betrayer would put their bread into, and when we read of partaking the wine, that we are to equate this to the Passover Seder protocol. Now, while we do not know for certain, the earliest documentation about the customs and protocols of the biblical festivals is the Mishnah. The problem is that the Mishnah was created in the third century, well after the time of Christ. That said, most of what eventually became written down were but the long-time practices that until then were handed down as oral traditions. In other words, it wasn't that upon the writing down of the Mishnah that all new traditions were suddenly created. Rather, most of what we find in it had already been practiced for a long time, only now it was finally formula- formally documented. This means that the way that Passover and Unleavened Bread is celebrated today is likely very similar to how it was in Christ's era. Therefore, it's often claimed that the bowl that the matzah was dipped into may have contained the salty water all right, used in the ceremony. Perhaps it was the harasheth, a sweet mixture of apple and honey. Maybe even it was the bitter herbs. Frankly, I don't think it was any of these. See, because this wasn't the Galilean version of the, uh, of the uh, version of the Passover Seder. Rather, it was some kind of a pre-Passover meal. Further, the complete Jewish Bible saying that it was matzah that was dipped into the bowl is david stern's assumption most other english translations simply say bread however the greek word is share which means neither matza nor bread it means something like hand so literally it, the idea is that someone dipped their hand into the bowl, meaning they used their hand to dip some unnamed food item into the bowl. It's only assumed that the thing that was dipped, dipped was regular or unleavened bread, but it's not stated anywhere in the passage. Now, because biblically it is not required, to eat unleavened bread on Passover day, then different Christian denominations have interpreted how did you communion differently. Some use regular leavened bread, some use only unleavened. The only reason I would favor unleavened bread is because Jesus identifies this bread with His body, which is a sinless body and leaven is the standard biblical metaphor for sin. Now, verse 26 explains that Christ, as the officiator of this ceremony, took the bread, probably it was matzah, and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. This was customary Jewish mealtime protocol. When he broke the bread, and before distributing it, he would have made the blessing over it, what the complete Jewish Bible calls the Berkah, with the customary words, Baruch Atah Adonai, Min in English, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. But then He said something that was anything but customary. He says that we are they are to take and eat this matzah as representative of his body. Now, I'm not at all sure how the disciples might have thought about this. In fact, this, along with the next blessing and what Yeshua says that's to represent, must have caused the deepest consternation among all of his would-be followers, which is, I think, why the apostle Paul thought it so necessary to carefully explain it, and we'll get into that shortly. So next in verse 27, Yeshua takes the cup of wine, he tells all to drink of it, but before he or they partake, in verse 28 we're told that he makes a blessing over it, and then tells the disciples that this wine represents his blood, but also it is in the sense of validating a new covenant. And that the blood, represented by the red wine, is to be seen as his shed blood on the behalf of many that atones for their sins. There's so much here to unpack. First, the blessing he would have said over the wine is Baruch Adonai Elohim, Alam, In English, blessed are you, or Lord, our God, King of the universe who creates the fruit of the vine. Remember those last few words, who creates the fruit of the vine. That Jesus uses those words is confirmed by the verse 29, when after the blessing over the wine, he tells his disciples they won't be drinking this fruit of the vine until he does so with them in the kingdom. We should understand that this blessing over the bread and the wine was rather standard over meals, not necessarily confined to religious holidays. What is different is how Yeshua uses them as symbols and metaphors for his body and His blood. How were we meant to understand all this? Let's begin by saying that body and blood together essentially means all of what Jesus is as a human being. It is symbolic of Him as a created being brought into this world by His human mother, Miriam. So the idea is that His followers, you, me, everybody, are to fully identify with Him in His humanity and in His death and later His resurrection. Yet, it is also here that we get a fuller statement of this mysterious, redemptive nature of Christ's body and blood. It is here that we learn that the sacrifice of His body and blood, His entire being in other words, will enact a forgiveness of sins for many. See, that speaks not of His humanness, but rather of the divine aspect of His nature. Uh, I'm sure it was something that must have perplexed His disciples. Further, the recorded words do not say that His sacrifice forgives all, it says it forgives many. The translation of many, not all, is correct. And, of course, in no way do they mean the same thing. Who are the many, according to Yeshua, who are forgiven? That's yet to be defined. There's more to sort through, however. Now, we've discussed on a few occasions that Yeshua has been characterized as the second Moses throughout Matthew's Gospel. Moses was Israel's first mediator, and also he was the Redeemer of Israel, Jesus is the second. Therefore, we see Christ use terms and symbols that Moses and the prophets utilized in order to cement that connection, and one of the chief ones used is the spiritually necessary element of blood in covenant making. In Exodus chapter 24, we read this, starting at verse 4, Moshe wrote down all the words of Adonai. He arose early in the morning, built an altar at the base of the mountain, set up 12 large stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent the young men of the people of Israel to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings of oxen to Adonai. Moshe took half of the blood And he put it in basins. The other half of the blood he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it aloud so that the people could hear. And they responded Everything that Adonai has spoken, we will do and obey. Moshe took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, This is the blood of the covenant which Adonai has made with you in accordance to all these words. So, in the Last Supper, by use of the blessings and the symbolism of wine as blood, Christ's blood, it is the necessary element to ratify the New Covenant. What's the New Covenant? First, we need to hear something that may be a little uncomfortable. Not all of the ancient Greek New Testament manuscripts include the word new, only some. Just some. What we find often is not in the oldest Greek manuscripts of the Gospels is that Christ is quoted as saying, this is the blood of the covenant which is shed for many for forgiveness of sins. Interesting. The lack of the word new is not some anomaly with the book of Matthew. We find the same thing with Mark's Gospel. Most ancient Greek New Testament manuscripts of Mark do not have the word new in front of the word covenant. Mark 14.24 reads almost identically with Matthew 26.28. It is the conclusion of a number of excellent Bible scholars and researchers that the reason the word new even appears in some of the ancient Greek New Testament manuscripts of Matthew and Mark is because it was added centuries later by early Christian church institutional authorities to make it conform with Luke 2220 where it does appear. All the ancient Greek manuscripts of Luke seem to include the word new in front of the word covenant. So Luke writes that it is the new covenant that Christ is ratifying with His blood. So why is it that all the manuscripts of Luke's gospel call it the new covenant, but the manuscripts of Mark and Matthew often simply call it the covenant? little mystery here. Well, a clue is that the gospel of Luke was written after both Matthew's and Mark's. And there's a very good reason, very good reason, that Luke would have added the word new to form new covenant. And we're going to talk about very soon, we're going to talk about what that reason may have been. So, what does this mean then, theologically? If Yeshua only said, this is my blood of the covenant, and not, this is my blood of the new covenant, I'm going to muddy this up a little bit further by saying that the complete Jewish Bible adds the word, ratifies, to form my blood that ratifies the New Covenant, ratifies or anything like it does not appear in any ancient Greek manuscript of Matthew. Inserting the word ratifies, you see, serves an interpretational purpose for the author of the complete Jewish Bible by assuming there is a New Covenant that is in need of being ratified by Yeshua's blood, as opposed to the text speaking about what can only be the existing covenant of Moses. Now, One could easily construe this verse to mean that adding Yeshua's blood upon the covenant of Moses does something that up to now it couldn't do, making one sacrifice on behalf of many. Now, I've heard it said by countless pastors that the real innovation that's been created is that Yeshua's blood forgives sins while the covenant of Moses, with its animal blood sacrifices, only covers them. Whatever good that does, or whatever that's supposed to mean, that is just biblically not correct. Long before Yeshua was born, a person who sinned and made the sacrifice that the law of Moses called for indeed had their sin forgiven. And it says so unequivocally countless times in the Torah. Sincere repentance was also needed, but that, along with a proper altar sacrifice, indeed forgave sin in God's eyes. So, we can't look there, For what the difference might have been between the efficacy of the blood of bulls and goats spilled on the altar versus the blood of Christ spilled upon the cross as concerns atoning power. Yet, if we assume that the covenant that Yeshua spoke of was indeed a new covenant, then what exactly is He referring to? Because whatever it is, we certainly do not find it in the gospel accounts. The record or even implication of him creating some new named covenant from whole cloth is not there, something that had never before existed. See, the usual interpretation is that he's speaking about Jeremiah 31. And I agree, by the way, I agree. That indeed, if he ever actually spoke of a new covenant, Jeremiah 31 is the logical place to look for it. I'm gonna spend the first, I'm gonna first read the part that most Christians have heard quoted by our church authorities. Then, afterward, I'm gonna read the verses that follow that short passage that puts what was said into proper context. Here's Jeremiah 31, verses 30-32, through 32. Here the days are coming, since, uh, says Adonai, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by their hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, because they, for their part, violated my covenant, even though for I, for my part, was a husband to them, says Adonai. For this is the covenant I will make. With the house of Israel after those days. I will put my Torah within them and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God, they'll be my people. Here's another version of this last verse that I want to share with you that uh, in the way it's more customarily translated in English Bibles. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them And on their heart I'll write it and I'll be of your God and they'll be my people." Where the complete Jewish Bible says the Lord will put the Torah within people's hearts, all other English versions say the Lord will put His law into their hearts. So, is this implying the creation of a brand new, never before existing law that God will put into the hearts of those He has elected? The institutional church, historically sort of ignores this part of the verse and says that really what is put into our hearts is the Holy Spirit. So with this innovation, the Holy Spirit replaces the law. Now, that's anything but what this passage says. So what law is this talking about? It's either the law that already existed, the Law of Moses, or some mysterious, unspoken, brand-new law that is nowhere found in the Bible. Rather, the only new feature about the New Covenant that Jeremiah records is that instead of existing only on slabs of stone or on sheepskins, that is, the law is something that is external to humans. Rather, God will miraculously write His law on the minds, on the hearts of His people. The external becomes internal. Even more, who exactly does God make Jeremiah's new covenant with? Verse 31 explicitly says, He's making it with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That is, all the tribes of Israel. There's no inclusion of Gentiles here. Certainly, no mention of the Gentile church. And yet, that is exactly how the institutional church spins this passage to mean. I promise we'd read a little more of Jeremiah 31. So, as we just continue what I just gave you. Starting at verse 34, this is what Adonai says, who gives the sun's light for the day, who ordains the laws for the moon and the stars to provide light for the night, who stirs up the sea until the waves roar. Adonai, Zebaot is his name. If these laws leave my presence, says Adonai, then the offspring of Israel will stop being a nation in my presence forever. This is what Adonai says. If the sky above can be measured and the foundations of the earth can be fathomed, then... I will reject all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done," says Adonai. See, that passage makes two things very clear about whatever this new covenant is. First, God's ordained laws will not disappear. Second, to make the point as graphic as possible, the Lord says that if these laws do ever leave His presence, only then will Israel and their offspring stop being a nation before him. The law remains in force, and only should the sky, the universe, be measured and the earth fathomed. Now, this is an expression, meaning something that cannot and never will happen. Only then would God reject Israel. Yeshua reinforces those thoughts 700 years later using very similar imagery to what Jeremiah recorded during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17 through 19, something many of you could almost all recite by heart, do not think I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to complete. I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, Not so much as a ute or a stroke will pass from the Torah, not till everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments, teaches others to do so, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There you have it. In Jeremiah 31, God says the law is going nowhere, however, He is going to place that law within humans as opposed to existing only outwardly. And Christ reinforces that thought in Matthew 5 and really throughout His entire Sermon on the Mount. Now, assuming that Jeremiah 31 is the source Of this new covenant, then the one thing we do know is that it is not a covenant that replaces anything, and especially not the covenant of Moses. Biblically, no covenant made between God and man is ever abolished or replaced, but new ones do get added. In my opinion, at the Last Supper, Yeshua announces that the moment of the prophesied new covenant of Jeremiah 31 has arrived, and it goes into effect upon the moment His blood is shed on the cross. And further, what the new covenant is, is the laws God gave to Moses, the Torah, that have now miraculously been placed into the hearts and the minds of His chosen. That is, no more mechanical obedience to what is essentially a rule book, but rather the sincere intent and substance underlying the law of Moses will become melded into the minds of those who love God and demonstrate faith in Him by loving and committing themselves to His Son, Jesus Christ. The New Covenant in Christ's blood did not void the Law of Moses, it internalized it into our very nature, enabling a deeper devotion to it and providing the ability for believers to carry it out in the loving and the righteous spirit that God intends. This would be symbolized by the very real act that would happen in about 50 days after Yeshua's death. On the feast of Shavuot Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would come as the embodiment of the law that would dwell within us. So some 30 years after Christ's execution, the Apostle Paul clearly felt the need to instruct about this Last Supper ceremony, a bread and wine to his fellows, no doubt because it greatly troubled especially the Jews. See, the idea of eating bread as flesh and drinking wine as blood smacked of cannibalism to the Jewish people, and in any case, eating blood of any kind was expressly forbidden. So, even Yeshua's symbolic representation didn't go over very well. As a result, the Jewish scholar Paul, having gone to the elite rabbinic school of Gamaliel, did what trained rabbis do. He made a drash, a midrash, about it and taught it to his followers. We find it in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. For what I receive from the Lord is just what I passed on to you, that the Lord Yeshua, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And after he had made the berkah, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this as a memorial to me. Likewise also the cup after the meal, saying, This is the new covenant, affected by my blood. Do this, as often as you drink it, as a memorial to Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until He comes." Now, we have here a perspective that Paul adds to the Last Supper ceremony that appears Yeshua did not include. Because it is here that we find the instruction. As often as you drink it, do it as a memorial to me. There is no instruction in Matthew 26 from uh, from Christ for his disciples to repeat this ceremony. It is presented as a one-time event. No instruction exists in Matthew or in Mark that this bread and wine ritual was to be repeated as a memorial to Yeshua. But such an instruction does exist in Luke 22. So why in Luke does his gospel account refer to the covenant Yeshua was talking about as new? and that the bread and wine, the taking of it, is meant to be a repeated memorial to him, but the other Gospel accounts don't. Why is that? See, the connecting tissue here must be Paul's midrash on the subject. Recall recall who Luke was. Luke, the Gospel writer, is the same Luke paul's traveling companion and student same guy luke heard this interpretation from paul and so when luke wrote his gospel it would seem that he incorporated paul's understanding of the meaning of the last supper by what we just read in first corinthians chapter 11. look again at matthew 26 verse 29 this statement is also a prophecy about his death and resurrection, although no doubt the disciples didn't understand it that way at the time. That is, the reason he wouldn't be drinking wine again is because only he has only perhaps as little as 16 more hours to live. Could it mean that he won't be celebrating the Passover again until after his death and resurrection? But he will at a later time in the kingdom of heaven? Yes, it could. But I don't know that it does. It's rather ambiguous. See, one of the important takeaways from this verse comes at its end. When he speaks of the kingdom and who the owner of this kingdom is, his father never does christ call the kingdom of uh, does christ call the kingdom of heaven his kingdom and we should never think of it as such he will rule over it with all authority but he will do so as his father's agent i cannot close today's lesson without pulling it all together and encapsulating it in the best possible context. Isaiah chapter 53 does that in a far superior way than I could ever conjure up. So open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 53, amazing chapter, Isaiah chapter 53. Who believes our report? To whom is the arm of Adonai revealed? For before him he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He was not well formed or especially handsome. We saw him, but his appearance didn't attract us. People despised and avoided him, a man of pains well acquainted with illness, like someone From whom people turned their faces. He was despised. We didn't value him. In fact, it was our diseases he bore, our pains from which he suffered, yet we regarded him as punished, stricken, afflicted by God. But he was wounded because of our crimes, crushed because of our sins. The disciplining that makes us whole fell on him and by his bruises we are healed, oh, we all like sheep went astray. We turned each one to his own way, yet Adonai laid on him the guilt of all of us. Though mistreated, he was submissive, he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to be slaughtered, like a sheep silent before his shearers, he didn't open his mouth. After forcible arrest and sentencing, he was taken away. None of his generation protested his being cut off from the land of the living for the crimes of my people, who deserved the punishment themselves. He was given a grave among the wicked. In his death he was with a rich man. Although he had done no violence and had said nothing deceptive, yet it pleased Adonai to crush him with illness, to see if he would present himself as a guilt offering. If he does, he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days, and at his hand Adonai's desire will be accomplished. After this ordeal, he will see satisfaction. By his knowing pain and sacrifice, my righteous servant makes many righteous. It is for their sins that he suffers. Therefore, I will assign him a share with the great. He will divide the spoil with the mighty, for having exposed himself to death and being counted among the sinners while actually bearing the sin of many and interceding for the offenders. We'll continue with Matthew chapter 26 next time.